Hi, I'm April Klimkevich. And I'm Amanda McClooney, and this is Her Step Forward, where we share stories from women who step up, step out, and step forward into careers and lives they love. Dr. Jillian Losh is a project manager at the Houston Methodist Research Institute within the Texas Medical Center, the largest medical complex in the world. She currently provides project support to research teams, helping to ensure that future drug, device, and biologic therapies will be available to a variety of patient populations. Jill completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Houston downtown, where she majored in microbiology with double majors in biology and chemistry. That's also where we met. She then attended the MD Anderson Cancer Center UT Health Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences, earning a PhD in microbiology and molecular genetics. Jill is an enthusiastic supporter of the biomedical sciences as both a scientist and an administrator. Jill was part of the team who oversaw the development of the first FDA-approved convalescent plasma therapy for COVID-19 and assisted in the therapy's transition to clinical trials. When she's not working, you can find her in Irish dance class, yoga class, or chauffeuring her dog to the park. Jill, welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. We're excited that you're here. (laughs) So happy you're here. So let's just, let's start out with the big stuff. In the face of the global pandemic we're all facing, COVID-19, your team was the first to experiment with blood transfusion therapy. Can you talk us through the nature of the therapy and why it's seminal for coronavirus? Sure. So for those of you that don't know, uh, plasma would be the liquid component of blood, right? So we think about the white blood cells and the red blood cells. We learn about those in school. Plasma is just the rest of blood. So just the liquid part. So this plasma therapy has been used for both viral and bacterial infections uh, throughout fairly recent history. And scientists and physicians have actually used both human and animal plasmas for this therapy. So one of the things that that plasma itself is comprised of is antibodies. I'm sure that everyone's heard about this on the news. So antibodies are basically small molecules that can target something bad, I'll say. So whether it be a virus or a bacteria, and then it will instigate the rest of the body's immune system to respond to that threat. I just wanted to run through the history because I know that this plasma therapy, we haven't seen it often in the headlines. The first valid trial, I'll say valid just because our, you know, science and medical records maybe don't go into great detail a hundred years ago, but the first valid trial using um, this convalescent plasma therapy was done in the late 1800s for diphtheria. And it was also used with mixed results during the Spanish flu in 1917, 1918, which obviously we've heard a lot about during this pandemic. This therapy was also used, I know, later than that, I think in the 1920s for scarlet fever. And I know it was also used for pertussis, which we know as whooping cough. Um, That wasn't up until the 1970s. And interestingly, they used horse serum for that. Um, And then it was also used for uh, tetanus as well uh, until, until the 1970s. So it has been a very common therapy, although perhaps it just hasn't been used for something as far-reaching and, and perhaps frightening and contagious as, as what we're seeing today. One of the reasons why our team, and I know many other teams throughout the U.S. and, and other parts of the world, had decided to, to go with this therapy before, obviously, an actual cure is available, 
is because, as I mentioned, it was used back during the Spanish flu pandemic. So since it has been used in history, um, we know that it is fairly safe. I think we're all familiar with blood donations, and a lot of that includes plasma and platelet transfusions, even if the donor doesn't exactly know what their donation will be used for. Um, and so we felt that this was a really good treatment to help patients while we're all still waiting on a vaccine. I love the idea of while we're waiting for a vaccine, we know that this is a type of therapy that can work. Yeah. Um, we were a little bit worried, though, that we weren't going to get enough plasma donations because, as I'm sure everyone has heard, you know, in order to have the antibody for COVID, you, you need to have previously had COVID. So one thing that we discussed when we were working on this with our physician and his team we may not get enough plasma donations perhaps because, you know, what if someone who had been previously sick and never come to the hospital, what would really make them want to come to the hospital to donate when, mm -hmm. you know, we know that there's all these patients with COVID at the hospital or, you know, what if someone had been hospitalized for COVID, they thankfully got better. They went back home. Would they be likely to come back to the hospital just to donate one, if not multiple times. So at the beginning of this, we did put a contingency plan in place for ourselves where basically we were just hoping we would at least get a few patients treated with this on the trial, if not the full 50 we were asking for. But we were super touched, really happy that in fact, our blood bank at, at the hospital and many other blood banks throughout the nation have actually seen this uptick in first time and repeat donors. Wow. So it's been awesome. We have received so many donations, continuing to receive many donations. Um, it seems that the people that, you know, have recovered from coronavirus are excited to have an opportunity to help others. So it's been really touching. And so now we are going to try to expand the trial uh, to perhaps 150 or more patients. So it's been going very well. Wow. And, and to think that so many people and you were worried about, oh gosh, are they even going to want to see another hospital again? And they're just like stepping up to the plate and saying, how can I help? Yeah. Yeah. It's been wonderful. That's cool. I love that story. And Jill, I'm so glad that you could fill us in a little more on what this therapy is, because I feel like you know, there are so many news stories and so many headlines with COVID-19. And, and I remember hearing about a plasma therapy, but no one ever really discussed what does that mean? And I had no idea this has been something that, you know, has has been used since you, you said the 1800s and even back in the time of the Spanish flu, which was in the early 1900s. So, it's fascinating to know that, you know, this has been around for a while and, and people like April and I who are not in the science world, we don't really know anything about it. Yeah, it's a really cool therapy. I mean, just to, to do a really brief, um, I guess, more like personal viewpoint on it. Um, so if I, for some reason, had such a large viral load of, of COVID within me at once and my body wasn't able to produce the amount of antibodies needed, basically, if one of you guys had already recovered from it, then you would go make your donation. The plasma then would be taken from, from your donation, put into me. And so basically, it would just be that your antibodies are just as good as those that I may produce myself to help 
uptick an immune response within my body as well. Cool. So Jill, knowing a little bit more about this therapy and the history of it, you know, to, to say right now that I, I can't think of anything like COVID-19 that has ever affected every single corner of the world like this disease. Is it, is it the disease? Is that, is that it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can also point that out too. I know that some people have been asking me what COVID-19 means. Oh yeah. So coronavirus is a family of viruses of which I believe there are about six or seven. Um, This specific one that we're talking about is SARS-CoV-2, which is the specific virus's name. COVID-19 stands for corona. So the CO is corona, the VI is virus, the D is disease. And 19 is just indicating 2019, which is from when it was characterized. I know some people are saying, is this the 19th COVID? No, it just stands for 2019. (laughs) Cool. That is good to know. We are learning so much that we don't um, ever learn about in the news. So thank you. Of course. And and so, you know, when I think about COVID-19, it reaches every corner of the world. No one is exempt from this. What is it like to be one of the scientists working on a therapy for this virus that has such wide-reaching implications? I, I can't even ask the question in the magnitude that it is in my brain, but that's the best I can do. <laughs> Tell us yeah. about it. No, I, I think that's that has been at the heart of this. Um, for so many of our doctors you know, worldwide, it's the first time that they're experiencing an outbreak where there's no existing cure. You know, it's the first time that many of us as scientists are dealing with this as well. Um, And so while the trial isn't offering a cure, it has been a real honor to help contribute to a study supporting a therapeutic that can be used until this highly desired cure becomes available to all of us. Um, It's been really wonderful for me you know, I am a scientist by training, as, as April mentioned. I, you know, did science throughout undergrad and grad school. Now I'm an administrator, and so I'm not actually hands-on in the lab, but as a project manager and in regulatory affairs, it kind of offers me an outside view to look more at the big picture and, and work with the rest of the administrative team and, you know, offer assistance and and perhaps navigating through the bureaucracy so that our scientists in the lab and our physicians don't have to worry about some of those things. So it, ha- it has been a real honor to be a part of this. I'm really happy. That's cool. Jill, you mentioned something pretty interesting, and, and I don't know the answer, and so I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't either. What's the difference between a, a cure and a therapy? So a therapy would be something to assist the patient to get better. Whereas a cure theoretically would be, this is the magic, the magic thing to make the patient better. Oh, Um, our therapy would be something to help assist the patient um, in the hopes that, you know, their perhaps their immune response could do the rest of the job as opposed to, you know, a cure, which would be like a vaccine where the patient receives the substance, I'll just say, to just clear the virus from their system. Okay. That makes so much sense. Thank you for illuminating that difference for us. (laughs) Yes. And I understand that it was a heavily female team of scientists and writers working alongside you. So what was your experience working on this team with mostly other women? 
Yeah, so it's been great. I've actually been really fortunate to work in heavily female settings ever since grad school. I feel like a lot of women tend to gravitate towards biology and microbiology. I think, I don't know the stats on this, but there is a lot of female microbiologists. So that's been awesome. But, you know, this experience was was quite special. Um, my boss is a woman. She's extremely knowledgeable and really supportive. And um, I've worked with her for about two years. We work really well together and I enjoy supporting our office. And in turn, she's placed a lot of trust and responsibility into my hands. So it's always good to work with her on something new and exciting. Additionally, one of my childhood friends is a fellow PhD, and she works as a scientific writer at Methodist in the pathology department. So this is the department that pushed this trial forward. And, you know, we've been friends for ever since we were kids, but we've never had a chance to professionally collaborate. So that was really special for us. Oh, cool. Yeah. I love to hear that this was a heavily female team because for some reason, and I don't know why, I guess in my mind, I've always assumed that, you know, science is very heavily a male profession. And maybe that's because it's, you know, in in the world of STEM and we hear a lot now about trying to level that playing field. So that's exciting. Go women. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that's a, a pretty good transition to another question that I'd like to know about from you. Jill is, you know, taking a step away from coronavirus and thinking more about your career on a broad scale. Can you tell us a little bit more about being a woman in STEM and maybe share, you know, about a time when women stepped up for each other that really impacted you? Sure. So, yeah, as I said, I've been extremely fortunate in the sense that, you know, I haven't found in in biology that being a woman has placed any barriers in my path. Um, But yes, I will say that biology, I think, is a little bit more historically female, more of a historically female-driven field than perhaps some of the other branches of STEM, as you mentioned. Um, In microbiology, we have always had influential women, you know, driving the progress of our field. But yes, I, like, I have been honored to have the support of many female peers and student mentors and faculty, but whenever I hear the question, when has a woman really stood up? for you. What really stands out in my mind is my undergraduate advisor, uh, Dr. Lisa Morano. So I'm the only scientist in my immediate family. And I've always loved biology, but I didn't grow up seeing myself becoming a scientist. And I think that's just because I didn't, I didn't know any other scientists beyond like Bill Nye on TV, who was the guy, (laughs) love him though, you know. But it was actually Dr. Morano uh, who was the first person to ever tell me that she thought I'd be a great PhD candidate. And I was already working on my bachelor's in microbiology, but I guess I never really, I guess I never considered that perhaps I'd be cut out for grad school. But her, her comment when she made that to me and our subsequent conversations after, it really made me see myself differently. And, and I did apply for grad school and I actually ended up being one of the first students that was accepted that year. And I really owe a lot of that to her. And over the years since I've graduated and, you know, gone to grad school, she has remained a really big cheerleader for myself as well as many other female students. That's great. And I love that story. That is encouraging you in a way that you never, um, you know, maybe like you never envisioned yourself that way because you just didn't see that path 
for yourself and somebody was there saying, no, hey, this could be you if you want to. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, switching gears again, I love um, talking about hobbies and how they shape us. And you mentioned horses and we've talked about yoga a little bit. You also are an Irish step dancer. So we know that you have a variety of ways that you balance your life. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance that balance plays for you? Yeah, of course. So I, I really feel strongly that I wouldn't have achieved some of my professional successes without my hobbies and my sports. And I think we all know that physical activities can teach you like discipline and perseverance. But for me, it's also been more than that. I am a very anxious person. I struggle with anxiety a lot. And through my activities and, and my hobbies, I really feel like it's offered me this ability to, you know, turn my mind away from work, also to just like channel my baseline anxiousness into like this mm-hmm. physical energy. Whenever I leave the yoga studio or the dance studio, my mind, like it literally feels scrubbed clean. And it's really made such a big difference in my life. I, I feel like at times when you know, maybe you're feeling down about your job or something else, you know, you do always have family and friends that you can go to. But I feel like a hobby where, you know, you see yourself progressing, and it's just, you know, you in the studio or you and the horse or you and the basketball court or whatever it may be. um, It really gives you that, you know, little self esteem boost that you know, it's just you and your hobby and, and you're making progress in it. I love that. And I think that what you mentioned about um, that kind of like baseline anxiety and we have choices, right? We can either choose to suffer with that or we can figure out a way to channel it or work on diminishing it. And I love that idea that your hobbies are the things that make you feel like you've inwardly cleansed. That's a really cool way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, I I will say that for my whole life, I'd wanted to try Irish dancing, but I was very involved in horseback riding. And I think my poor dad was like, look, kid, <laughs> there's only so much time so much money. Um, so, you know, yoga has been great because yoga for the most part is free <laughs> or very, you know, it doesn't take too much, maybe just some class subscriptions. But my horse is is older now. And and I was looking for another type of high impact or, you know, activity. I really hate running, (laughs) but it's funny because the link to my Irish dance school, the the website link actually lives in my bookmarks bar on my Chrome for, I don't know, maybe like five years. I just (laughs) was so nervous to contact this dance school and go because I felt like I don't know, like, oh, I'm an adult, you know, they're not going to want to teach me. And I I really let my anxiety, like, take control over that. You know, one day I was like, you know what, I'm going to open up the website, I'm going to contact them. And lo and behold, they offer an adult class. That's great. And if I would have just known that, <laughs> but, I, but I went and from my very first class, it's like, it was amazing. And one of my biggest regrets has been, why did I put this off for so long? Because... I am learning this great art and have made so many good friends. And so that's been something that I did let my anxiety get the better of me there, but I'm glad I was able to turn that around and give something new, new a try. And I really hope that, that everyone does that. 
I like that story so much. Good for you for trying something different, finding, you know, finding the nerve to do what was maybe scary for such a long time. Um, and I can also really relate to, you know, what you said about being an anxious person. And that's one of the reasons why I also love yoga so much. I mean, it's such a great way to just quiet everything that's going on in my mind, even if it's just for an hour. And, and sometimes the effect lasts longer, but, um, but I like that story a lot. Thank you. Yeah. So Jill, um, you know, we've had so much fun chatting with you today. And as we're getting ready to wrap up our conversation, I'm curious to know, what's your best piece of advice for women who are looking to take their next step forward? My number one piece of advice without question, without question at all, is to network. It's made a really big impact on my career, both in grad school and out of grad school. It made a world of difference during my job search. And I have met so many friends just by networking. You know, perhaps we don't work together in a professional capacity, but, you know, we just got to know each other and it just makes us closer as a scientific community or, or any field that you're going into. And so I would always really be a strong promoter of networking. Well, the career coach in me loves that advice. <laughs> <laughs> No, and it's great advice. Networking is so important. You know, I think there's a there's an old saying, you know, it's it's not just about what you know, it's also about who you know. And and that's why networking is so important because, you know, there there might be, especially, you know, with jobs, there there could be people that have the same qualifications of the job as you. But if you know someone that already works or has a connection to someone at a company that you want to work for, it, it makes a huge difference a lot of times. Oh, exactly. And I, and I also think, you know, coming straight out of school, whether you're high school, bachelor's, undergrad, or even just trying to change jobs, I feel like, you know, networking has really, for me personally, introduce me to people who explain, oh, no, that job isn't actually what you've heard that it is, you know, because they actually do it. Or, you know, someone who says, oh, well, have you considered this? I'm like, no, I didn't even know that such a thing existed. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's been been really invaluable to me networking. Wonderful. Well, with that, we want to say thanks to everyone for joining us today. And thanks so much to you, Jill, for taking time to share your story with us. My pleasure. Thank you guys so much. Of course. As always, we're looking forward to sharing more stories soon. In the meantime, check out our website at herstepforward.com or follow us on Instagram at herstepforward for all the latest updates. If you'd like to reach out to us, shoot us a message on Instagram or email us at info at herstepforward.com. See you next time.